Welcome to the Modern Drummer Podcast. I'm Editorial Director Adam Badovsky. In this episode, we speak with Ira Elliott, drummer with the band Not A Surf, which recently released two albums, the studio collection You Know Who You Are and the live release Peaceful Ghosts. Knowing that Ira is a great fan of 80s music, we thought it would be fun to spin some of our favorite records from that era and get his reactions. We're here with Ira Elliott of the band Not A Surf. Hi, Adam. Uh, welcome to the Modern Drummer podcast. I am so excited to be here. I'm excited to be I'm here. Very, I'm really, really happy. I I'm feel very honored. I must be. I must well, be honest with it's you. it's wonderful to be here in your in your fairly new. I'm new excited home to in, uh, show it off. And are we in Queens or are we in Brooklyn? This is uh, Queens. This is Central Queens. Uh, okay. It's the uh, all the hipsters have been uh, shuttled out of uh, Brooklyn. We can't afford to live uh, where we want to live anymore, <laughs> and we're forced to move deep into the center of Queens. But I grew up here. This is my old neighborhood. Yeah, basically. I was going to say you're there. This this isn't too far from where. Uh, I grew up in Forest Hills, which is about five, five minutes from here. Did you used to watch the tennis. Yeah, me a big tennis. I was part of a, a, a tennis themed uh, street gang. <laughs> Hell's Jews. You would, you would throw tennis balls from behind parked yeah, cars. Yeah, leather-studded yarmulkes and tennis rackets. I hated you guys. You always we to, were tough. Yeah, I got mugged at least a <laughs> few times going to the U.S. Open. Um, but that's not what we're here to talk about. No, we're, what, no. what, we are here to talk about music from that sometimes maligned decade of the 80s, which yeah, is... it was tough. That was, yeah, and rightfully so. There was a lot of bad music in the 80s. Uh, but for drummers, it was a really interesting time. I got to say, like, you know, that, that whatever you think about, uh, you know, the styles of music that were happening and the production of music. I think the problem with me with 80s music was really about, probably mostly about production style as much as anything. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd have to agree. You, you, and you hear that sometimes when you go and listen to a record you haven't heard. Mm-hmm. In you know five, ten, fifteen years, all of a sudden you're like, oh my god, the drums yeah. sounded like that. I don't remember that. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. It's a long, long. Well, we'll get into it. It's interesting yeah. to me, like this sort of, you know, the thing that b- people don't like about it is this. I mean, the thing that I generally, you know, you, you know, I, I'm one of those guys that when a song comes on, you know, in a few seconds whether you're going to continue to listen to it or not, based on like how, you know, if it's like a huge slick production, if you're going through the radio and like, you know, like modern country music, like it's so overproduced and or pop music, I just it turns me off immediately. And 80, you know, in the '80s, I was a uh, you know working musician. I was looking to sort of be part of the the game, you know, I was looking to, you know, going from being a sort of an underground musician to being a, trying to be like a successful modern pop rock musician. And so, the, you know, trying to sort of get to these sounds, these modern sounds is really a part of the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it is. It, it's interesting how much sounds sort of uh, define an entire era. And the other mm. thing, too, about the 80s and the first song I'm going to play mm. for you, as a matter of fact, this would be a good time to sort of explain a little bit of what we're doing here. Sure. Um, we're going to basically play some tracks. Mm. Um, Ira doesn't know what the tracks are yet that I'm going to play him, so though. Nervous. They were chosen lovingly and, and hopefully somewhat <laughs> intelligently. <laughs> um, and then uh, we'll go off on a few tangents, I'm sure, and, and get to some things that um, that are particularly close to your heart. I think some of these will be as well. Okay. Um, but one of the things that... Um, Besides just the sound, um, the 80s always seemed to me to be an odd time to talk about because on the one hand, you've got a lot of musicians who came up in the 70s, so there's a certain aesthetic to 70s playing. Um, But the 80s at the same time was all about the new you know, right. it was so important at that time. Yeah. I mean, new wave—that's exactly yeah. you know exactly. why it was called. And I was, was. and I was—that was really central to me. That was my whole life. Like, I was a '70s drummer. I started playing the drums in 
I guess I was around 10 years old. That was 1973. Mm. And so I really came into my own as a drummer during this uh, an amazing period, I think, in music, uh, mid to late 70s. I was really, you know, absolutely obsessed with being a drummer and playing all the time. I, you know, play a couple hours a day. Mm. And it was to the radio. I learned, uh, you know, on the radio. And so it was this time where it was like classic rock was like the thing. Mm. And then there was the entrance of the new wave, and which I was absolutely fascinated by, absolutely adored. So I was one of those classic rock guys who was mm. like Zeppelin Stones. And then all my friends were sort of prog rock guys. So we were all listening to like Rush and so forth and mm. Genesis. And then, uh, and then all this new wave stuff started happening. I really loved it. I was a big police fan, mm-hmm. but I liked anything quirky and weird. And mm-hmm. you know, the, and the drum sounds on a lot of those records were mm-hmm. really interesting. Uh, a lot of them were drum oriented. Yeah, know? exactly. It was it was an interesting thing too. Uh, you know, just thinking back around that time. On the one hand, you know, the whole Johnny Rotten kind of thing about wearing a Pink Floyd T-shirt to sort of draw a line in the sand about what was right, past and what was future. New, yeah. But I, I remember at the time. You know, being into bands like disco, Genesis, disco and yes, sucks. yeah, that whole kind of thing. Yeah. But at the same time, I think a certain uh, aesthetic about listening to uh, adventurous prog rock was the same thing that got us into new wave music because it was a lot of prog rock was about. It's, it seems strange to say now, but mm. at the time it was about opening doors and trying to do new things, new sounds, right. and a lot of new wave was exactly. I mean, mm. I, I can still remember hearing the Human League, mm. and uh, right. a lot of those bands on the radio for the first time, and have it mm. literally seem shocking. Yeah, yeah. First time I remember seeing Devo, for example, famous moment. I think everyone, a lot of people from that generation, had this moment of like seeing Devo on mm-hmm. Saturday Night Live, and you're like, oh my, what is happening? What is this? Yeah, exactly. What is this new thing? This is so disturbing and great. <laughs> You know, right. it, yeah, it was like new and, and invigorated the whole thing. It was a great time to be a drummer. I got to say, like late 70s, you know, everything was happening. It was classic rock. There was mm. reggae was happening. Disco was happening. I mm. spent a lot of time listening to disco. I had mm. no problem with disco. I was mm. not one of those people. I loved, you know, uh, as a drummer, I, I learned early on to try to enjoy repetition. And, mm. uh, you know, that's a good lesson to learn. You know, just laying out flat beats, not even, you know, fills, fills are, are you know, fine but you know these sort of long straight lines and and uh you know and then prog rock was having a new wave with power pop started to happen in the late 70s mm-hmm. so many interesting things at the same mm. time and the rise of electronic music and dance music uh which we'll get into too like this was quintessential in the sounds that you needed to make dance music versus rock music or mm-hmm. electronic music versus uh, mm-hmm. uh versus acoustic music you know it changed the way uh uh, drummers had to play and had changed the way drummers had to tune mm. uh, how they set their drums up very fascinating yeah it, uh, well let's let's listen to a track okay um oh what's it gonna be it starts <laughs> off with, uh, well, it starts off with a bag so let's, let's let's listen to this let's listen to this track okay value this record it's like uh, it's one of those records that if you don't know what to play and you just want to be in a good mood you put this record on it, there's not a it's the most like the leanest most like uh, like perfect rock and roll record of all time and po- and potentially you know one of the top two or three greatest rock bands uh, uh, you know talk about like a power 
group, like of just the greatest players left and right. Every one of these guys was better than the one next to him. They were just spectacular. I don't know if you've ever seen that documentary about the making of this record. I have not. Well, that'll blow your mind pretty hard. But wow. it's called uh, it's called Born Born Fighters or Born Fighter, which is hmm. a, a Nick Lowe song, hmm. and it's about them in the studio making doing these recordings and hmm. watching. Uh, Terry Williams record and, mm. and Terry Williams you know that uh, this was around done around 1978 79 around, 19, mm-hmm. around 80 I think this record came mm-hmm. out it was recorded around 1979 mm. and uh, when you watch Terry you see a guy uh, in the studio small kit like two up one down uh, tight little kit and uh and the whole thing, they talk about uh, making records in the late 70s like it was a, it was like an arms race. Like everyone was trying to make their records louder and louder and louder. Hmm. It had to jump out of the radio. And so uh, what you see is this rise of the taking the, the, the bottom heads off. I'm sure this started in the mid-70s where drummers started to sort of like get, started to get the, uh, that big sort of queen tom sound or the big cars tom sound, hmm. uh, which was Roy Thomas Baker, where the, the toms, you know, they wanted the focus uh, so they took the bottom heads off. Now Ringo started doing that in uh, the late '60s, and, I, and I, everything goes back to Ringo, really. Mm. Uh, and this sort of the removal of the head, the removal of the drum heads, uh, which the Beatles started to do. Um, I don't know if they got that idea from somebody or, or, or where they got it from, but however, the, 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 taking the bottom heads off, taking the front of the bass drum off, for example, and then taking the bottom heads off the floor tom, for example. Mm. Um, changed the sound so radically and changed the the ability of the of the engineer, the producer, to alter the drum sound uh, to close mic. Because drumming had to be sort of a distance miking thing by definition mm. with a t- with closed drums. But once you got the heads off and you get the mic up inside, then the producers had a field day because then they could have a dead sound, they could bathe it in reverb, they could make it big, small, they could do whatever they wanted. Mm. And this was the rise, this gave birth to the rise of, of 70s production. And Ringo was the first one. T- Paul took that sound mm. that he watched Ringo do, he put it on all his own records, all these, mm. you know, he played himself on... Uh, uh, a band on the run, for example, is all Paul mm-hmm. playing a Ringo-style kit in a Ringo-style way, mm-hmm. and it's all very dead, thumpy drums with no bottom heads on them, mm-hmm. very percussive and dead. And you know, then you can make it whatever you want. If the drums are small little points, mm-hmm. they take up less room. They leave more room for other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, and and then it went down on and on and on. And now by this time, they made this record, uh, 1979-ish, 1980. Mm-hmm. You, you can't quite hear it, but the drums are very flat and mm. attacky. Mm. It's probably like a 400 or something, a very uh, like a five-inch uh, mm. metal shell drum. Mm. And Terry Williams is just one of the greatest. Like sh- you hear here is this mad shuffle, this relentless, perfect uh, uh, breakneck shuffle. I mean, this is the most invig- This is like the greatest like Friday night music of all time. I can't tell you how much I love this record. Yeah, this is. Um, by the way, this record is uh, Rock Piles. Second, seconds of Pleasure. It's the only record they ever. Their made. only actual record, though. You know, you tend to think of Niccolo, uh, who's singing on this one, or is this is, Dave uh, Edmonds? This, uh, this could, for this all I know, Dave? this could be Nick, or it could be uh, the guitarist. It could. Be, oh right, uh, Billy, Billy, Billy Bremner, Bremner right. who often sang uh, lead on a few of these songs, is Billy Bremner. That could have been Billy. So this is their their one no, that, record. That was probably Nick, though. Yeah, they yeah. made their one record, but at the same time, they were cutting tracks for some Nick solo records, and they were also cutting tracks for some Dave Edmonds solo records. So the stuff they would do in the studio got farmed out across three different projects. Wow, the fascinating stuff. Yeah. And then Terry later, Terry joined, Williams uh, later later joined Dire Straits. Dire Straits being the drummer, for, the for, very powerful drummer in Dire Straits. If you can think of the whole opening to like that. 
that big drum opening to like you know I want my MTV right, and right. Uh, what's that song you know Money for Nothing yeah, has this right. huge drum intro that's right. all Terry across a tremendous big power tom yeah. kit yeah yeah fascinating stuff right. and and that as you said that fast shuffle it, it's kind of you know we think of new wave sometimes we think of you know the electronic hard, aspect of it hard, yeah you know, right exactly the, the, the very, this is the yeah no they were, of they were a little more old school feel. they were they were yeah. much more old school but they they were a band that were trying to sort of straddle this line between being an old school bar mm-hmm. rock band in a way right. songwriters band but having the energy because they knew what was happening at the time was a sort of punk rock new wave and they were they were they were trying to uh, keep this sort of modern energy at the time, this sort of uh, young, youthful kind of uh, in-your-face kind of energy. You can see in their, you can see videos of their performances. And they were sort of, you know, gum chewing. They were trying to be adopt this attitude of like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, heck with you. We're tough and cool. And their audiences, you know, the audiences that they played for were young kids who were all about, you know, Johnny Rotten and yeah. and the Clash and the Pistols. And they yeah. had to they had to play in that in that uh, ballpark. Yeah. Um, and so they were trying to stay tough. And it's a very tough record, but it's also a great musical record, full of great songwriting. Yeah. And great playing. The drum performances are all uh, top notch. And you hear Terry there at the top of that song, that fat, that beautifully phrased, yep, yep. you know, aggressively played, yeah. fantastic stuff. And you can picture the band on stage sounding just like that. Yeah, it, it, and it, the videos it, that you find of them are, yeah. they don't, they, you know, it's no, there was They're four like killer players. Like that you can't, you couldn't stop those guys. Like them and the Pretenders and the Pretend, I think mm. to me, the Pretenders and Rockpile, I would say at the time were probably my two favorite bands. Let's try another one. Sure. Yeah, well, you know, another band that was incredibly, uh, I'm gonna, like every, every band I'm going to say, this is the most important <laughs> band to me. Um, I guess in college, uh, I went to uh, college, I guess around 1981, 82, mm-hmm. and uh, XTC were in ascendance at this time, and uh, Black Sea, um, probably still their, possibly their best, most consistent record front mm-hmm. to back. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I loved all their records through the, through the 80s, but this record was really, really uh, central. And the drum sound, this is, what's his name? That's the producer. Is, uh, oh, who produced you know, this? I, uh, this is uh, really... Uh, is this um, Steve Lillywhite? Uh, well, this, you know, maybe Steve Lillywhite did produce their records, so he might not have produced this one, but yeah. maybe he did. You have to look that one up. Yeah. Uh, I don't know who produced the record, but you hear the... Uh, um, is this another Terry? Was this Terry? Terry Chambers. Terry Chambers. They're all named Terry. Every yeah. drummer in the, in the 80, or late 70s was named Terry. It was Terry Chimes, Terry <laughs> Chambers, Terry Williams. There's a lot of Terrys. Uh, oh my God, this list is all Terry. It's all Terry. It's all Terry. Uh, Terry, Terry Thomas uh, from, from Bewitched. Um, uh, and again, like a really powerful drummer played a big kit. I don't know if he did the single-headed thing or the double-headed thing. Mm. Here. Very, very, uh, very aggressive, mm. big style, very influential on me. Beautiful sound. This, mm. this here, this hi hat on the upbeat thing. Drummers are just doing that today. That a lot of modern English bands are playing that. Mm. Like uh, Franz Ferdinand, mm. Mm. they're still playing that. It's a very powerful beat. It's big. Yeah. It's sort of semi reggae-ish, but it takes up, it takes up less room than playing your hi hat on every note. Right, right, right. Listen to these toms. Let's hear it. Very, very tight, punchy yep. drum sound. That could be single headed. A lot of their stuff, uh, you know, you hear like little, he used a lot of like little, small, like, uh, either could have been uh, rather tall, just 
mm-hmm. like that on mm-hmm. certain things. Now you had XTC on, on your XTC, own list. I have a bunch of stuff XTC, XTC, that, I, that I loved. Uh, yeah, uh, where the drum, the drum sound we, uh, were very. Yeah, Towers of London, actually. This mm. was on my list, too. And Respectable mm. Street, on the same record. Right, right. Um, yeah, this is a great example of, uh, of what are the, yeah, at the time, like as a drummer, you're like, man, this is the way to do it. Yeah. Like, yeah. Isn't, isn't this beautiful forward motion, mm-hmm. beautifully phrased, nothing, everything, every fill was perfect. Like, you know, you waited for them. Bam, 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 like, beautifully constructed, simple, drums out of the way, but very, very, you know, keeping this beautiful forward pulse. Yeah. 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 It's a great thing to be, yeah. a great thing to be influenced by. There's, a, there's, yeah. a, there's enough there technique-wise yeah. that it gives you some bars. Yeah. You don't need, to, and you don't need to be like Neil Peart to play this stuff. Right. You just need to mean it. Right. Right. You, know, you just right. need to, and, these, and he does a bunch of these little fills here at the end, which are the same kind of fills that, uh, Drum in the Clash would do the same kind of fills where he sort of cross his hands over between the hi hat and the snare. Here he does another one here. Oh no, that's a tom fill. He does these things yeah. where he crosses yeah. his hands across yeah. the hi hat. They're like triplets mm-hmm. between the hi hat and, and, and the snare drum, mm-hmm. which is the same thing. Uh, Clash's drummer, ter- uh, 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 Topper Head, would, yeah. uh, Topper Head, would do the same thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. there's a little bit of a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, great, great stuff. Oh my God, so such an important record. This is uh, this is kind of an important record in a way too. English Settlement was also English. Yeah, that was the first one that I had. That was the I think that was the record after this. Yeah. Also, very great drum record, full of great uh, drum stuff. Here's this. One. We're gonna let this go right into the next song. That sounds like Townsend. That's Townsend's guitar. There's no doubt about it in my mind. That's Townsend. Love this game. <laughs> I knew you would. Okay, see now this is an interesting story. Here's here's the Who, the much maligned late Who, with uh, with uh, the great Kenny Jones playing drums in 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 place of Keith Moon. And uh, so while the the opening tone and chord is clearly Townsend, when the band starts playing. It doesn't no longer sounds like the Who that you're used to from the '70s. It's a little more contained. It doesn't have the sort of mad manic uh, moon kind of you know. You can't quantify what that was, but clearly Kenny Jones either chose not to play that way or was like this stuff not really plays. Well, here he's playing. You know, that's something Keith could have done. But uh, but you hear the contained energy that that uh, that. That uh, that Kenny had, and uh, you know, I'm a huge Kenny Jones fan. I'm a huge fan of the faces uh, and the small faces. Mm-hmm. And uh, Kenny Jones' style, when you look at it from in the early '70s and late '60s, was very much akin to Keith's early sort of R&B style. A lot of uh, you know, the sound was very similar. The sort of Lud- well, Kenny Kenny was more of a Ludwig guy. Mm. And I and I want to get in here that my contention that um, for the five minutes. That Keith played Ludwig drums, the Who never sounded better. Keith should have stayed with Ludwig drums. This is a this I'm gonna this is a like if only kind of thing. But there was a period for about a six months, hmm. and there's a couple of videos where Keith is playing like a Silver Sparkle Ludwig kit, like on top of the pot, you know, like ready, steady, go. Um, and then he got an endorsement from Premier and switched over because they gave him free drums, yeah. and uh, which he loved because he could destroy them and know yeah you know, they get new ones. Yeah. 
Um, but the Premier drums don't sound the way Ludwig drums sound. I gotta say, those few recordings that he did with Ludwig drums are noticeably like there's like wow, this sounds really good. We'll have to go back and but, listen. Uh, to yeah, there's a there's only a few of them. Um, but yeah, this is a, interesting. Um, this is a great song. You know, Kenny Jones, again, stays out of the way, very, you know, mm-hmm. smooth. Here we go. This is all, but this is all classic Who stuff, like yeah. big open spaces, yeah. wide, rangy. Uh, oh, this, this, yeah. this is a nice part. Well, bridge. You, you know, Chance Townsend wrote a great, great bridge. He could always write a great bridge. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And this is the part that, like, you listen to this, and you're like, okay, I could hear this maybe on um, Quadrophenia or whatever. But on this, this is very Quadrophenia. Yeah, but on the same record. Mm-hmm. Um, Eminence Front, which to this day is mm. being used in commercials, yeah. because of mm. the, the modern, modern, modernity, yeah, yeah, the modern very, sound of right. it. Right, it's very, very minimalist. It's There's minimalist. not a lot of stuff, and I think that's the interesting thing to me. What's interesting, over looking at the Who, you know, you had this sense of, of Moon as this sort of manic, wild, out of control thing. Mm-hmm. But when you listen to Who songs, early Who songs tend to be a little bit rush. Early Who singles. Can speed up and slow down. Mm. Uh, they're very scattershot time-wise. Mm. But by the time Townsend started really making his own demos in the late 60s, early 70s, his home demos on his, uh, and I think he would make demos and then bring them to the band. I don't know if he played drums or used a drum machines or whatever. Mm. But it's clear to me that the the Who started when they really started making these the bigger records, Quadrophenia, um, uh, Who's Next. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were working off Townsend's demos. And which were two uh, drum machines and clicks. And clearly, Keith was playing along with clicks from the beginning of the 70s. He had to rein in his mm-hmm. manic thing. Mm-hmm. He couldn't run away with it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why those records are sound so powerful. Keith became really good, especially by Quadrophenia, yeah. of playing along with a thing yeah. and keeping that sort of manic. Those things never go off the beam. They never speed up. They never slow down. Um, so say what you want about Keith's manic blah, blah, blah. Yeah. It was he was able to to learn how to do it yeah. uh, uh, to keep it reined in and keep this manic energy a, a, against a uh, against a against a click. Yeah, I mean one of the few real specific comments that that Pete makes in his autobiography from mm-hmm. a few years ago mm-hmm. says exactly that. As a matter of fact, he went so far as to say that he never knew anyone who played a drummer who played better mm-hmm. to a click track. Yeah, well, click can be very, very uh, comforting. You know, you yeah. know where it is. Like, you know, yeah. you're not you're not worried about, oh, am I speeding up or something? You can hear immediately yeah. if you're speeding up but or it, something. It, it's so interesting because it flies in the face of what the typical comments are about Keith. Right. You know? Exactly. And, it, and it really uncontrollable. Just, yeah. Yeah no. yeah. no, no. He, I think, I mean, I don't know if it was out of necessity. I mean, I mean, I wasn't there. I have no idea. But, uh, you know, that's it, always been fascinating to me. Like, because you think of sort of like him being the sort of like animal character from right. the Muppets, like completely right. off the leash. Right. And, yeah. uh, literally. And, um, but really, when you listen to those recordings, you listen to uh, uh, stuff on Who's Next. Listen to uh, um, the groove of something like uh, uh, Pinball Wizard mm. or. Um, uh, the Seeker, mm. that sort of gallop. Keith's mm. Keith's stock, Keith's bread and butter, was this sort of military gallop. And he did it with his off kilter, weird bass drum playing. Like his double bass drum playing was, he kind of stepped down both at the same time. He didn't really have much double bass drum technique to speak of. Yeah. but he would just kind of bring his feet down, and they would flam. Yeah. And that natural flam was that 
That was the whole gallop behind the Who was this sort of this natural yeah. uh, gallop that that Keith, you know, and his his lightning uh, those sixteenth note triplets that he was able to execute it at, yeah. at you know lightning speed. You know, yeah. Yeah. It made those records so exciting. But yeah. he was able to do them while recording with a click uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and and keep it in pretty 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 amazing. Yeah, amazing stuff. And again, uh, all, all props to Kenny, the great Kenny Jones, who's yeah. still one of the yeah. one of the, one of the, one of my favorite drummers yeah. of all time. I yeah. love the faces. I'm a big, big, big faces. Oh, yeah, yeah. Faces and the, and they were they were peers. You know, they, they yeah they, no they were they were exactly all probably all in the same neighborhood. They yeah, probably yeah, were all yeah, yeah. buddies hanging around drinking in the Certainly Scotch of St. James or whatever <laughs> these places they all these English guys hung Certainly out in the same, the same bar. Parties and yeah, hanging out with their arms around Ronnie Wood. Yeah, he looks the, exactly the same. Yeah, exactly. Kept their neighbors up at the same time. This is a little bit different. Oh, so good. Actually, no. This was a single, Level Terrace Apart. Yeah. came out just a couple months after, and a couple months before Ian Curtis, the singer, hung himself. Right before the band was supposed to tour in the United States. Right. So a lot of a lot of baggage. To this. Sure. Um, the story I've heard is that Martin Hannett had Stephen Morris, drummer Stephen Morris, recording hi hat, snare drum, bass drum, toms. All separate. Oh, he really? Wanted, he wanted massive control over it. And I believe if we listen to this carefully, you're hearing that hi hat while during the fills. Yes. Oh, you know, I never, I never really listened that hard to this song. But he had to play it live. Sure. So he had to figure out how to do it. Right. Um, but I believe if you listen carefully, to, and there's a couple different versions of this song. Yeah. Um, I was in a band once that played Joy Division covers. Mm-hmm. Having oh, yeah. to figure this stuff out. It was, it not was a great surf, fun. Not a surf played this song, I'll I tell you this one, right? Yeah. yeah. And it's always harder. It's always harder than you think it's going to be. Yeah. But yeah. it's just this architectural yeah. kind of thing right. with this energy that you yeah. really have to calm. Right. Yeah, it's really about this sort of hard... It's those, just those, it's those, it's the two fills. It's, that, it's the upbeat fill, bop, bop, the one, two, and, 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 and then the, and the, you know, two, three, and, that, you know, and he just sort of he just he, he uses them uh, one and then the other, and there's one, there's that one, and then this bump bump bump. This is sort of like a, it's more like a uh, like a like a uh, modern uh, like a uh, uh, Hal Blaine. Yeah, like a Phil Spector thing. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but the energy of this is fantastic, and I think they spent a lot of time trying to get the drums to sound hard and cold. Mm-hmm. There was a coldness about these. They really went after a very clinical, kind of disturbingly not warm sound. They wanted something that was sort of a little unnerving. Yeah. And uh, the drum sounds are very, again, probably single-headed drums, mm-hmm. very, very percussive, um, brutal. You know, it was a brutal sound. And that's what you do when you when you get the bottom heads off toms, you take the front head off bass drums. Mm-hmm. Again, Keith Moon. All those recordings that you know of Keith Moon from the 70s, uh, are all done on uh, Keith didn't put front heads on his bass drums hmm. he didn't put any towels his, ba- his bass drums were wide open his, uh, all those were recorded with and he, his live kit had a combination of single and double headed kits uh, single headed and double headed toms hmm. 
But I think uh, if you listen to those recordings, it's very clear that you listen to things like Off Quadrophenia and Who's Next. Yeah. Those are all, it's a single, it's a big, you know, six tom, single headed kit. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's very, very brutal and percussive and it sounds fantastic in, in, in the mix of a record. Here's, here's a different sound for you. Yeah. Not a Surf had a song. When I joined the Not a Surf in 1996, we had a song called uh, Stalemate, which uh, we'd been playing it for a couple of weeks, months. And I'm like, there's something about this song. What is it? It reminds me of something. And I went home and I, I was like, I was on the. I spent a lot of time on the subway at those in those years, and I'm like, and it hit me, and I went home and I a beat it against this song, <laughs> and they were the same. Uh, they were kind of similar tempos, but they were in the same key, and it was the same, basically the same chord progression. I'm like, oh, that's why it reminds me of Love Will Tear Us Apart, um, and so I brought that to the band like the next day. I'm like, hey guys, you know, if we wanted to. We could, in the middle of this song, there was a bridge in the song, we could just go straight into Love Will Tear Us Apart. We could segue them together and then go back to the song, which we ended up doing live for a number of years. We would play Stalemate, which is on our first record. Stalemate, stalemate, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And then... I remember there was... I'll just tell the story very quickly. We, we were on a tour some years ago opening for a band called The Vines who were very big at the time mm. and we were playing some big shows in England opening for them. And uh, we were, you know, it was a big deal and uh, we wanted to go... It wanted to go really well and we played a show in Manchester, uh, the home of uh, New Order. Yeah. And uh, we weren't... You know, we wanted to go over really well and we wanted to impress and we're like, tonight... We gotta, we gotta remember to put that. We, I think we, we hadn't played it in a while. We, we gotta put it back in the set. So about, about, uh, about maybe three songs in or four songs in, we played Stalemate with, which included our version of Love Will Tear Us Apart, uh, which was a great idea because what happened was we played our song and the audience, uh, the audience is, you know, there watching whatever. And then it's somewhere in the middle we break down and it's, you start to there's that build up, shakagam, and and when we launched into the progression. And played the little da 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 da. I could swear to God that it was like the air got sucked out of the room. It went totally silent. People were like, "Are they? Is that?" And from there on, we we won. Like they loved it. The fact that we broke into level terrace apart, the audience was to like we not that they were not into it up yeah, that point, yeah, yeah. but if, from there on, we could have fallen over and farted. They wouldn't have. They would have loved. It. <laughs> they weren't. We were heroes for playing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's I like really felt. You really felt there was like like you you really felt the there was something happened in the room. Like you really heard. And maybe it was in my mind, but I really felt like there was like a as they really like focused in on what we were doing for that second. Like oh, these yeah, guys well, are okay. Yeah, it's a pre <laughs> it's a present to them. You it's know, a you're, it's you're, a great you're, song. You're acknowledging. It's, it's such a powerful yeah. beauty. And you know, again, a great example of everything that Not a Surface tried to do is embodied in this song. This combination of happy, sad. If you just took that melody and the chord progression, it's almost nursery rhyme. Like da 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 dum. It's a very happy little melody. Yeah, yeah. But the lyrics are so sad, and they're so desperate, yeah. and they're so true about you know, you turn away on your side, and mm. something the lights gone out in this relationship mm. it's brutal it's really yeah. painful and really depth you know brutally honest yeah. and when you could smash these two things together this mm -hmm. kind of brutal emotional honesty mm -hmm. and a sort of a nice little melody that almost sounds childlike it tears your heart out it's yeah. very powerful yeah, very yeah, powerful. yeah. It's a great example of that here's uh here's something that's not well you know what it's actually uh, this this gentleman is not given as much credit 
Uh, Wayne Newton. F- uh, how did you know? <laughs> Damn it. Stop looking at my sheet. The, 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 once we play, the audience will know. Okay. Um, but this gentleman, in a similar way, isn't given enough credit for the depth and the, there's, a, there's a harrowing nature to some, yeah. of, some of his lyrics. Um, this might not be exactly one of them, but if you read between the lines and, and listen to the music, you, you, you'll probably pick up. Okay. Why is this man so maligned? You know why he's maligned? He's just so good. He's so popular, it hurt. People, they, they got, I think they just got fed up with him. I'm interested in watching Phil now, sort of he's on the verge of a of coming back. Yeah. Uh, I'm, fa- I, this is, I'm glad we brought up Phil Collins. Phil is central to 80s drumming. His influence cannot be, again, you can't undervalue his influence on drum sounds, production. Uh, the whole 80s was almost predicated on his developing the sort of gated, uh, overcompressed snare drum tom sound. The you know the the the, the apex being of course the the, the fill in like in the air tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, but this was you know years of working on the sound and getting it just so you know. A, here you have a guy who's always played a single-headed kit. He was always a single-headed kit uh, drummer. Um, he you know you uh, very expressive. Let's just look at Phil not as a songwriter but as a drummer. Um, you know, uh, fluid, expressive, powerful. I was very influenced, um, uh, not so much by early Genesis, Peter Gabriel Genesis. I came to the table around, uh, again, late 870s, Duke and Abacab. Uh, fantastic play-along drum records because the drum beats are just, just stunning. Like, they're, and they're fun to play. And the way you can hear here how he sort of trips across the toms and, you know, his use of the hi-hat is using the hat as a pst, you know, to use to sort of stop time or slow down time. He was able to do these things where the, the like, his hi hat work is always spacked spectacular. You hear him, here's a great fill. The toms are short and out of the way. And so they, they just speak quickly. He played an unusual four-tom kit. Uh, 8, 10, 12, 15 up top. 16, 18, I think. On the 8, 10, 12, 15. He avoided the toms that all drummers had. There was no 13. There was no 13-inch tom. He took that one out. He went 12, 15, 16, 18, or 18, 20, or something like that. He took out, I, think, I don't think he had a 13 or a 16. It might have been 18, 20 on the ground. Um... But this sound uh, uh, was incredibly powerful. It was all over the radio. You couldn't avoid it. And, you know, he was also doing production for other people. Uh, like, it's on my list. He did productions for Frida. Uh, I know there's something going on, mm-hmm. uh, which is probably him playing drums on that thing, yeah. too. Uh, there was a great Howard Jones single. Howard it's Jones, kind of a soppy Howard Jones single called uh, No One Is uh, No One Is to Blame. Yeah. It's a beautiful you, pop song. And you have to look for the right version of that because there's, there's an, there's an version. album version, yeah. which is okay. Yeah. But there's the Phil Collins version, which is really the one. He plays drums on it and produces it. Mm-hmm. And the drums are just like... It, great they're just perfect pop drumming mm-hmm. uh, and so Phil was not only a great uh, progressive rock drummer mm-hmm. who could play across the bar line or play in odd signatures and expressive emotional um, uh, but also like uh, precise here yeah don't, don't, don't. there's some stuff you know there's stuff uh, that he does on Genesis Records which is full Ringo he does there's one call what's that song I'm not gonna be able to think of it now with this song playing, but there's there's a there's a later Genesis song 
which you wouldn't even notice is ubiquitous. It's played on classic rock radio all the time. Mm. And it's just, it's him doing Ringo. There's no doubt in my mind. It's him like playing like Ringo. It's a very Beatlesque uh, song. I'm not going to be able to think of it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but Phil was. Uh, well, Phil he was a mod, right? He was, he was, well, I mean, he was, he was in Hard Day's Night. Yeah, that's right. As he was extra, in the right? audience. So he was an extra, probably like, you know, he was probably 12 years old, an extra <laughs> right. in Hard Day's Night. But yeah, I mean, he grew up in, you know, in the, in the, in the, in the, during the Beat Invasion, like we all did. He's probably, mm-hmm. you know, only a couple mm-hmm. years older than me. Uh, mm-hmm. or, um, but I'm a huge Phil Collins fan. A huge, uh, as a drummer, I happen, you know, separately, uh, you know, people don't like his voice. I happen to like his voice. Um, so uh, you know, uh, the only thing you don't like about Phil is maybe his, his, uh, Overly uh, uh, romantic uh, ballads. He became a balladeer. Uh, you know, I don't blame him for that. He wrote, yeah. you know, write what you know. He but went through some A couple of stuff. those, as, a, as we started off talking about, you know, the segue, mm. probably the only time Joy Division has been segued into Phil Collins. Mm. Was that Joy Division we talked about? Uh, yeah. Uh, maybe. Yeah. Um, but the Phil Collins drum sound, yeah. you know, he started, the, 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 when I was doing the research here for this, um, there was a song on the first Peter Gabriel record called Intruder, mm-hmm. uh, which is generally credited as the first, the introduction of this, uh, the gated drum sound. I think the story was that they had, they they were in the studio and they someone was on the talkback mic and they, the drums, someone played the drums while the talkback was on yeah. and it did this wonderful compression compression thing and they're like... That's the sound we need. Can we get? Can we do that? And they sort of re-jiggered the whole thing so they could get the drums through this sort of talkback mic compression, yeah, yeah. Uh, which became the the sound. Like yeah. it's very aggressive. It's super percussive. Stark. It's up in your face. It's, fan- yeah. it's a fantastic sound. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people didn't like it. And th- and th- and the problem it, I think with '80s drum sounds, a lot of times you go back and. Um, the drum again, like like I was talking about, rock pile. It was an arms race to get drums and production. Everything sounded had to sound bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. And what you ended up with in the eighties was this drum sound that was like, you know, uh, like a big. Con- it was sound, it started to sound leaden instead of sounding sort of light and and aggressive. It started to sound like, which was a part of it too. Like you know, some people don't you know you know it could be sort of grating. I remember. Do you know Dougie Bound? Do you know who Dougie Bound is? New York. Dougie Bound is a, yeah, uh, he played with uh, Lounge Lizards, a fantastic uh, uh, drummer, sort of a jazz rock drummer. And I remember meeting him on the street years ago, and he said to me something I'll never forget. He goes, yeah, man, I just did this session, and we got this amazing snare drum sound. It sounded like you were hitting a lake made of concrete with a telephone pole. (laughs) The image never left my mind of like striking a concrete lake with a telephone pole. Like that's the sound we got. I'm like, dude, I don't know if that sounds great yeah, or yeah, awful. Yeah, yeah, what yeah, is yeah, that? Yeah. <laughs> Look, this incredibly uh, huge yeah. uh, leaden sound. So yeah. I think that's the problem people have with 80s drum sounds is they mm-hmm. in uh, they they also got very very uh, uh, leaden and uh, unnatural. I think it was the unnaturalness of the gated reverb that a lot of people didn't yeah. in the long run didn't didn't really like. I think it depends a lot on the type of music too. Like if you listen to, it doesn't suit everything. Yeah, it doesn't suit everything. It may have suited like I hate to say this, but some of my favorite. REM records I went back and listened to recently mm. and I just mm. I had to take them off just because it was just mm. too much it was too and I yeah. love REM and I love Bill mm. Berry yeah. his drumming but yeah sometimes they get yeah it's in the way it's like it's yeah uh, it's, it's just too a little much. it's, it's yeah, a little too much the drums were loud in the, in the mixes they were like radio mixes and the drums had to be really loud the right. other thing I, I discovered was that the thing about uh, the single headed drum thing and it goes back to that a lot is that um, the single-headed drum thing worked really, really well with electronic music. It's the reason that Bill Bruford mm. um, uh, were using, like in Crimson, this mm. sort of very 
electronic. You know, you had the sort of, uh, you know, that weird ba- the uh, stick bass mm-hmm. and the weird electronic-y kind of sounds. And UK, I was talking about UK with you earlier, mm-hmm. uh, how much I was a fan of UK. Not everyone's going to know that, but also like a proggy kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It was we're using these, uh, the single head of toms. Um, it works really well with electronic music because the sound is short. Mm. There's not a lot of decay. Mm-hmm. It's very, it's quick mm-hmm. um, and, and suits that production really, really well. You want the drum sound to be short and aggressive mm-hmm. and then the, mm-hmm. the single-headed toms do that really really well yeah 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 um here's another one oh, i'm liking this this is going very nicely oh, good i'm glad i'm happy. <laughs> <laughs> oh interesting yeah this is a great example of this hybrid this is a one interesting hybrid of probably like acoustic drums uh, I assume there must be triggered stuff in here. There's tons of production. This is a post-production, I think. Yeah, there's got to be. You know, we hear here the drums are really tight and in the face. So this would be Yes's biggest hit. Is, yeah, yeah, I guess so. This is really their biggest radio mm-hmm. from 1983. Uh, Owner of a Lonely Heart from yeah. 90125. Which this is the kind of thing that sound in when you did sound check. Engineers would always use this record to ring out the system because everything was very precisely recorded. Right, right, right bring out the system kind of right. Such an interesting era when you had these 60s and 70s bands adapting to this new to the new wave, new wave. Yeah, some did it well. And so how so how did it's interesting. So let's look at this. Like how did how did yes become new wave? Well, mostly it's mostly in that guitar riff, mm-hmm. which is the same thing as like it's uh it's the, listening to it now it's uh I talking in your sleep. Mm. Um but I hear the secrets that you keep, it's bump, bump, bump. Uh, there was another, there's a number of hit singles mm. from that period. Uh, I think, uh, um, uh, um, I, again, I can't think of it now, but there's a number of songs like uh, 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 Rick James. Right. Is the other one. Right. Um, uh, but with these, dump, bump, bump, uh, you know, uh, there's, what's the Rick James one? Um, so that's how they, they did it. They made the Super guitars freak. Super Freak, all based on the same kind of thing. So here they use that aggressive little guitar riff, bam, 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 which for all intents and purposes made it kind of new wavy. Yeah. And it was yeah. very effective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It worked and, beautifully for them. And most people hearing it on the radio didn't care that two years ago they were talking no, about... No, no, yeah, the past you know. doesn't really matter. Like it only, only the present matters. With music only, you know, we can discuss the past and musicians mm-hmm. look at the past and well, people should anyway, but musicians, mm-hmm. you know, you, it's like history. You learn from history, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what works and what doesn't work and why it doesn't, doesn't mm-hmm. work. Yeah, but, you know, uh, they a band like Yes couldn't be 78 Yes in 1980, whatever. We, right. we have to play a different game or we're dead right. in the water. Right. You know, you have to, on some level, you have to sort of go with the flow right. and adapt, you know, and it, it works for some bands. It doesn't work. You know, there's always this 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 thing that you have to uh, balance out. Like, you know, what does your audience think of it? You know, are you moving too far away? And at some point, you just have to make yourself happy as an artist and like, this, hey, this sounds great, and we're gonna do it. And you know, this is now an experimental era. It's now uh, how uh, wild. I mean, all the sounds they're using, all these like weird little samples are dropping in. It's pretty nervy. Like. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's not for the faint of heart to make yeah. a record like this. You yeah. have to really you're putting your you're putting yourself on the table yeah. here, and like you know, uh, you know. But they were experimental guys. They weren't afraid of it. You know, they knew it was, it was working really well. And, and they were also going through a lot of production changes and and mm-hmm. and, and, and player changes right. through this period as well. Right, right, right. And the year before, interestingly, was the one record without John Anderson. The record drama, but that oh, was that's right. That was the Trevor record with the two guys from the Buckles. Right, who were talk already. About 
Right, make a video, know. kill the radio star. Yeah, was that which game? I don't even know what Trevor Rabin. Oh, I don't know. I don't remember my. my yeah, my, but those I think two this guys. is probably before this. I yeah, think. yeah, yeah. I mean, interesting again. Well, I mean, is this? This is not. Uh, this John is the record after drama. But which, this is not. Is this John Anderson singing? This is John Anderson is John singing. Anderson? But at the same time, um, Trevor Rabin mm. playing guitar and singing as well, I believe. So, yeah. so there's a new vocal I, voice. I was really into. Uh, well. I got to be honest. My favorite one was. Uh, um, what was that single? Oh my god! It's one of those things. It'll divide a room. Like <laughs> some people really love this song, and some people really hate it. It was called uh, uh, "Love." Yes. Will, Love will find a way. Oh right. That's right. on uh, OU812 20, whatever that one is. Yeah. <laughs> but then it's all numbers. Not OU812. Uh, uh, Wait, that's 2112. That's for the next it, podcast. Yeah, there was a bunch of numbers: five zero two one zero, nine zero two one zero. I can't remember. It was, a, it was a yes record. Oh, big generator. It was big, big generator. Gen- that big was generator. the one after this. This one right. is nine zero one two five. Nine zero one two five. Big generator had this song called "Love Will Find a Way," which is a super high production thing. Uh, turn on a dime, but man, what a what a catchy song. All right, we're gonna, we're gonna and a great and an amazingly great drum sound. Amazing right. drum sound. This is an interesting one because it's this is kind of this is one of those songs where the minute it goes on, people are. Quivering with anticipation. Hmm. Oh yeah, and here's a drummer and a percussionist. Yep. And here's a very undervalued drummer. Totally. Yeah, great. Again, you can hear this. One. That right there is a great example. The sound, the perfect sound of a single-headed, a series of single-headed times. You know, it doesn't sound bad. It doesn't sound, you know, like drummers are. Like, you know, like it doesn't sound like single-headed drums. Don't sound single-headed drums sound great if you know how to, if you know how to tune them and you know how to mic them. Isn't that? I mean, that's a, like a high. That's like six, eight. Let's you hear the small, the whack of a small. Oh, it's a peripheral story. Recently, uh, my friend uh, John Fell, who runs the drum shop here at, at the in, in uh, Main Drag Music here in Brooklyn, um, was uh, ha- uh, he got a kit in. Uh, to be sold, it was uh, it was one of Neil it was Neil Peart's kit, Neil Peart's kit. I I'll, I'll say his name correctly. Neil Peart, the kit that's on the cover of um, All the World's a Stage. It's that silver covered uh, Slingerland kit. I think that he had two toms, two bass drums. You know, rush on the bass drums. They're smallish bass drums, twenty or maybe twenty-two inch bass drums. Um, and that kit had four six, eight, ten, twelve uh, t- open-headed toms, and they were copper uh, finish. And uh, that whole kit was in in the shop being sort of restor- uh, restored uh, to be sold. And this guy, the guy who owned it, had won it in a modern drummer contest years ago where you send in a solo and Neil uh, judged it. And he won the, with the certificate. He won this kit. It was it. And here was the kit. And it was in there. And he goes, Ira, you got to come in and see this thing before it goes. So I walked, so I went over. I was in walking this at the time. And there were those four toms, six, eight, ten, twelve, copper ones with you know they had like Evans blue hydraulic heads on them. It was like the original heads, yeah. hadn't changed them. Yeah. And I and I picked up. He goes, Jamie, do it. And I picked up a pair of sticks and I went <laughs> across those four toms, and it was the sound. That was it. Like there it was, like four little, four little single-headed drums, nothing magic, with blue. I think it was just like blue Evans hydraulic heads to keep them nice and dead and a percussive. And there it was. Like, oh, I was like, oh, I'm nauseous. Like, that's it. That's all it is. Incredible. Incredible. Oh, man. But here, yeah. you can hear the same thing here. Like, small, uh, um, um, percussive. I love it. I love it. And, uh, and, 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 and the drummer, whose name escapes me. Chris France. Chris France. The great Chris France. Again, like a hammer. Like, 
you know, not a uh, great stylist, but like solid, consistent, and funky in his very, very simple, simple way. Yeah, and at the time, you know, Talking Heads talk about. I mean, every single Talking Head record sounds completely different from the previous one, and it's completely yeah. fresh sounding and, yeah. and great. Yeah. I mean, there were a limited number of them because maybe seven or eight albums or something. Yeah, not that many. At some point, not that many. Um, but Chris, just you know, not the kind yeah. of drummer who you know, yeah. not your quote-unquote drummer's drummer. Yeah. Um, unless you were really into that music, and then you realized how totally yeah. awesome but he was. Yeah. But a solid. Yeah. There's an amazing live footage of, and they had a great band. Uh, you know, Adrian Blue and mm. a lot. You know, they had the Bernie Worrell. Right. And, um, there's some live footage of them um, from this period, with, or from earlier, where they're doing um, like um, Cross-eyed and Painless, mm-hmm. which is banana. You know, it's really banana. It's really super fast mm-hmm. and furious. Mm. And some live performances from uh, from that era. Which are just heart stopping, like the the uh, the the furiousness of like funky and furious at the same time, like just man, it's like uh, it's like uh, it's like going zero to sixty in a Tesla, like two point three seconds, bam. Yeah, that that, that uh, well, there's that live movie, right? Uh, oh, uh, stopping uh, sense. Stop, stopping sense. Yeah, yeah, it's just yeah. it's beautiful, beautifully Fantastic. shot. Yeah, really great idea. Fun. Like yeah, a, great yeah, idea. Yeah, yeah. 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 Here's another. Yeah, Chris Franz, under, again, a great un, uh, undervalued yeah, drummer. Just, just totally. Yeah. yeah. This is drummer song top to bottom. The drummer wrote it. The drummer recorded it. Right. The band didn't show up to the studio, and he's like, "Yeah, all right, give me. Where's that piano?" Yeah. And I think it. Does he play the piano on this? Piano, is him playing the piano. Piano drums. I mean, the piano music. playing on this song is. Let's listen to the piano playing for a second. Um, let's t- take a second here to sort of get down and, and like on our knees and go top her head and oh my lord what an under like uh, what a tragedy that this guy wasn't uh, didn't stay in the game longer and didn't stay in the clash like the great tragedy of the, tr- of the clash is that this talented musician one of the most remarkable drummers of that period powerhouse possibly the greatest English drummer of that period the powerhouse uh Pop, rock drummer, reggae, he could do anything. And he, he, he blew himself out on drugs and not only destroyed himself, but destroyed the clash at the same time. Kids, don't do heroin. Um, very tragic. But uh, but what he leaves behind, listen to this, like, all his drumming is all spectacular. All of this shit is there. go, not a false moment on any of it. Mm. Beautifully played, uh, um, beautifully recorded at this big English rock drum sound again he played very very dead drums uh, you see pictures of him with these big toms with a tape you know like uh, there's like clear heads with the, the, the black dot heads on top and bottom like Charlie Watts and big toms with like, like a black dot on the bottom with like two big pieces of duct tape to keep it super dead and thumpy uh, open bass drum fantastic sound and, uh, and a great musician, like a, great, a musical person. And you can hear it in spades here. Like, I sat down and this very unusual modal riff. What is this? It's amazing. They must have been pretty gobsmacked when they walked in and like, hey, guys, listen to what I did. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. Like, Here's our next single. Yeah. Topper, we didn't know. Right, right, right. And and they, you know, well, they, they put out that one record cut the crap after McJones left. Right? Yeah, I'm not familiar player. with that one yeah, really at all. And yeah, it was widely that's why. And that was it. You know, just from was smart enough to yeah. stop the band. But the thing that I was, Tragic. I had forgotten the timeline of this, but apparently Topper recorded this album. Mm. This is, um... It's on uh, Combat Rock. Combat Rock. Um, 
he was all messed up, as you were saying, yeah. at the time. Still managed to, to record this beautiful recording. Yeah, unbelievable. Um, but they kicked him out after after the recording was over. Mm. And then by the time they toured, mm. it was Tory Chimes, who yeah, was the original. Tory Crimes, their original oh, drummer, right. right. Who, who toured with them. Right. Um, and yeah. then it all helped. A fine drummer, but not half the drummer. Yeah, right, right exactly. Not the same energy. And, right. When uh, uh, you watch... Uh, you watch uh, he, uh, he's like a small guy. I think. I think uh, uh, um, Topper was a, a, again like Ringo, like a small English guy, like like five eight little guy. You know, he's, I can see him, and he's like wearing. He's obviously like Bruce Lee because he's wearing like one of those Bruce Lee like yellow with a black stripe kind of thing that Bruce Lee wore, like Enter the Dragon. So he's like this tiny little hard dude, uh, tough guy in this sort of, and he's playing these ultra long sticks he's got crazy long sticks like the length of his entire forearm and he's back behind that kit smashing away like a beautiful long stroke powerful great to watch uh just such a great energy when you, you know the, there was a few ba- ba- better bands to watch like look at photographs mm. of the clash mm. like the energy that's even in their photographs of that band when they the energy that like uh, sometimes like when you when i go to see a band that i'm excited about mm. i think about like the excitement that you get in knowing that a certain band is going to walk on stage. Mm-hmm. And I can imagine it must have been, like I saw Springsteen a few nights ago, uh, two nights ago, which was, yeah. uh, by the way, which was incredible, uh, the mighty Max Weinberg. Yeah. But uh, I've seen bands that were, you know, I had anticipated, but I made the mistake of going, what would it have been like if The Clash were walking on stage? And then they came on, whatever band I was going to see, and I was like, mm-hmm. not quite as good. Like the energy they must have contained, like when those guys hit the stage. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and uh, Topper was really uh, uh, central to that kind of yeah. incredibly, yeah. Uh, wor- you know, uh, this energy that yeah. they had. And another band with a relatively small number of records to there and a relatively small not too many uh, happened to seven Six, or eight yes, records yeah. uh, those but early but ones very powerful yeah, yeah. But less but, than but 10 yeah. years but then, it, but then it became you know then it was like but the, the big the big one was uh uh um london calling yeah and there were only two or three after that yeah 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 and then they you know their success killed them the success in the drugs uh here's another remarkable drummer who who, who did something by doing nothing when you really listen, when you try to, it's hard to take apart these things because like nothing's happening. It's like, it sounds like just kick and snare. It doesn't even sound like he's playing any ride or hi-hat or something. I mean, he probably so. is, and maybe it's the mix. But all that matters, and this is a great example, all that really matters is placement of kick and snare and this big pillowy, the big pillowy soft snare drum. It's not soft, but it's, you know, it's fat and, 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 and it sits it's consistent. It's, oh, I love, I love, uh, I love And you know that there's going to be something, you know, if you've been listening to Nick Fleetwood for a while, you know that there's going to be something just totally weird coming up. Right, and he always does this thing where he crosses a bar line or he puts a crash symbol in the, where you don't expect it. He's really good at that. It's sort of like, we're going we're gonna, to we're, we're gonna be here for a while. We're going to be here for three or four minutes in the spot. And then somewhere around like the three-quarter point, he'll put something where you don't, he'll drop a, a crash symbol, not on the one, but on the three of the beat before the f- two or you know where you don't expect it and it's always very satisfying or a, a fill a little fill that crosses the bar line and so so good and here like i said like here like he could be playing hi-hat or probably playing time on the hi-hat of the ride cymbal but they've mixed it in such a way that possibly the acoustic guitar is as important and it's in there i think maybe a 
Maybe it was like really loud. But they, the they can afford to mix it down or not have it there at all because you've, they, they're they're understanding that you know you've got that sounds mm. like a tack piano or something or, or right. acoustic guitar something playing those right. well, those eighth notes and it's not necessary. Right. There's, oh, I love it. There's a really cool. I mean, this, this is a cool, weird electric guitar. So you know, I, I'm fascinated by this sort of the the the, the um, just the, like like just like kick and snare or like you know if you watch like uh, the Beach Boys live where, where Dennis would just like literally just play hi-hat and snare drum on the two and four that's all he did and bring his hands down on the hi-hat and the snare drum together that was mostly what he did and it looked amazing the audience loved it it grooved like heck yeah, it, I'm trying to curse on the podcast I didn't want to say yeah 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 like, yeah no I, I, hell <laughs> I don't want to say hell I don't want to we have a pretty adult audience. Listen to this here. Bother with my dirty, filthy, my sailor mouth. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Again, a beautiful Ludwig, that Ludwig sound. And I assume he was still with Ludwig. And egoless, too. I mean, oh, yeah. No, he served the music completely. It was completely in service to the song. Nothing, uh, you know, yeah, completely musical. Uh, uh, and another band who started in the '60s. I mean, a lot of people are completely unaware of like the, the Peter Green Buckingham area. Mix. Yeah, yeah. Sort of very bluesy, uh, blues band oriented, little folky, little bluesy. Yep. Gonna have a. And I just want to uh, like send a shout out to Christine the Great, Christine McVie. Oh my God, what a songwriter! Everybody's singing. <sighs> Unbelievable, that great singers. Yeah, I mean, uh, here's, yeah. Here's talking about pop. Okay. This probably wouldn't be the first song that a lot of fans of this band would come up with, or at least hipsters, but it's, uh, it's flawless to me. Okay. One, two, three, four. You're wrong. <laughs> Mr. Contradictory. <laughs> this is a great song. Wait a minute, I know this song. Oh, this, yes, you know, this was a big for me. In the, in the, it was the 80s. Uh, the 80s were... For, for people like me who are power pop guys, mm. the 80s was a dead zone because it was very electronic and there were pop songs, but this sort of classic 70s style guitar pop was few and far between. There was not a lot going on. And when this song came out, was it like 86? Can you give me a year on this song? 87? This is 82. 82. Really? Believe that? Because I, the first cheap wow, record was probably I think like, was what, 77 or 78? This first couple, maybe, maybe not that early. I don't know. Well, yeah, I this is on the album One on One. Wait, no, 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 no. This no? is not on One. No, this is not One on One was eighty-two. This is not. This is later. This is on Standing on the Edge. Ah. Oh, wait, if you want my love, you got it. No, you know I'm compl- I'm I'm totally confusing with Standing on the Edge, which was later. I don't know. I have to confess. Standing on the Standing on the Edge. I'm thinking of the one, the big single on Standing on the Edge, which was probably in the later eighties, okay. which was. Uh, oh, I'm not gonna. Yeah, it was a big single, and they had been off the off the radio for a long time. And suddenly there was this power pop song. Right. Like, oh, right. This right. is the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. But this is one on one. This is app after. This was post Tom Peterson. Yeah. And they started using other writers at, at yeah. a certain point. Yeah. I don't know if it's this early. Yeah, I'm confusing this with the one on Standing on the Edge, which was a huge, huge pop single, which uh, 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 people who are listening to this right now will probably remember before I do. But yeah. this is a, I love this stuff. I love. I'm a cheap trick head and. The thing that struck me listening back to this was how deep that snare drum Oh, yeah, let's listen to this. I haven't really analyzed this song in a long time. 
I wonder like how Bunny, Bunny was affecting what, what they were doing in the studio. Was it just like the snare drum? Were they, were they, were they, you know, doing this, you know, sampling? Were they, were they yeah. augmenting somehow? Right. I'm fascinated by this. I recently was a, a friend of mine who's a session drummer. He's a, his name is a, a Wolf. Uh, um, oh, Stephen Wolf. Stephen Wolf. Yeah. Uh, and I've known him for for years. We're not we're acquaintances. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I'm fascinated because he has an amazing like he's one of those guys. He plays on big pop records. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, and I'm so I'm fa- I keep asking him like Steve, could you invite me to a session? Because I mm-hmm. you know I know what I do and I you know play on not a surf records. I know my experiences in the studio is what my experience. But I you know I've never been on a high production pop record where it's all like a lot of money being thrown around and. Um, so I'm fascinated to see how a pop drummer makes a record, and what do they do? And he, you know, he was saying that a lot of his uh, recordings that he does are run through a. Now, well, now they have these uh, these plug-in things, mm-hmm. where I guess it sort of links. You know, you have some like uh, thing where uh, you know it's pre-recorded samples of this and that studio mm-hmm. things, and they they augment his tracks, which I'm sure sound great anyway because he's yeah. playing the best. He's a great drummer right. in the great studios playing great drums. But even so, they augment it with these samples to give it the sort of pop perfection sheen mm-hmm. sort of get it really really even mm-hmm. out and I'm wondering mm-hmm. like a record like this one I'm sure which is not a cheap record to make yeah uh, how uh, you know what happens with a snare drum sound like how many ways can you get the sort of fat sound are you just doing it naturally is it the room are you adding something later right 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 I'm either point flo- adding a little sample of a floor tom yeah, there's lots of ways exactly there's a lot of ways to, there's a lot of ways to get at it I remember play, doing a, a, a production where the where the where the engineer took this took the snare drum signal uh, from the recording we had done from the master, and he sent the snare drum signal to like a little oratone uh, speaker, which he put in a room on top of another snare drum, <laughs> and then he mic'd the bottom of that snare drum to get more of the sort of white noise of the of the of that drum. Mm. So my drum was manually sort of triggering this other snare drum, which he was miking, and then he sort of sent that back into the mix. That's Things like that. That's a '70s thing to do, but there's a lot of ways to do it. Tony Thompson. Let's yeah, talk yeah. about Tony. Let's talk about Tony Thompson. Uh, you know, came out of the uh, uh, came out of this sort of funk background, right? Uh, chic. Uh, you know, a couple of the most influential sort of the disco singles of their time, but unusual disco singles. They weren't like the classic, uh, like the Bee Gees disco singles. They were a different kind of thing. And he came from a rock background. Uh, Tony was uh, also came from my neighborhood back in Queens. He was, uh, I think, he was from Kew Gardens. I can't remember what neighborhood he was. Okay. He was a Queens boy too, and. Um, um, it was a, sort of a rock guy. I know he talked a lot about uh, uh, being into Zeppelin and all this stuff. Mm. And so he was a power player. He hit hard, um, but he ended up in Chic. And, and, and again, Chic is a was a, uh, a sort of a disco pop band, and it was all about laying in this beautiful, fat, consistent pulse, which he was a, a, a adept at. And uh, plus, he could throw out a very. He had a very unique. Um, style of fill which you hear across a number of singles and of course Tony um, went on uh, to be the drummer in the power station uh, which was uh, among uh, there's a number of things he was the drummer for uh, but power station was one of the most obvious because it, again like a big drum single it was all about this huge uh, drum sound over this is a probably the example where people start to go well it went a little too far mm-hmm. um, the, the power station drum sound <laughs> this epic Gated, slamming uh, uh, update of the of the of the bottom drum sound, um, you know, and playing a T Rex 
single. So it, it was steeped in rock and roll. Uh, and yet it had this sort of uh, streamlined popness to it mm-hmm. and these big uh, these big big fills and he went on to and he, it was such a he was such a good drummer and the sound was so his own and unique and he was so good at it where did he end up he ended up playing with Bowie on a lot of great Bowie singles uh, ch- uh, well there's some contention we were talking about but yeah. like China Girl I believe mm-hmm. uh, um, Blue Jean mm-hmm. uh, he played on Madonna's uh, Material Girl there was a small period there where Madonna had actual drummers on her records mm-hmm. Material Girl is in a spectacular drum track and that's mm-hmm. Tony mm-hmm. flying you know he's it, unbelievable and you hear those fills uh, uh, those big uh, you know uh, flam drum fills uniquely his own and they're mm. all through those uh, power station records he was on those Robert Palmer records which were very very big uh, uh, um, addicted to love that's mm-hmm. that's Tony mm. um, what else he did some he did a couple other things but mm. if, if just for uh, Madonna Robert Palmer and David Bowie I mean holy crap man those are huge huge singles and, and his sound was uh, intrinsic to those things and he was a great player to watch when you saw him play there's a few moments in those uh in the uh, well there's a live video there's a, i think the serious moonlight video hmm. uh, tour is tony on drums uh so you can see him playing a bit there uh um uh but there's a few moments in the in those uh power station videos where there's a couple of cutaways of Tony whacking the snot out of those. He had like two 18-inch crash cymbals right up in front of his face. Mm. And he would just reach up both hands and like punch them. Oh, so beautiful. I, I remember watching those videos just to see that that millisecond where he would sort of reach up and smack those cymbals. Mm. And I was so like, that. I mm. want to be that guy. Mm. I want to mm. do that. I want to hit the cymbals like those cymbals just like that. Just reach up with two hands and punch them in the air right in front of my nose. Oh. God, I love it. Well, yeah, you know, it's incredibly influential drummer. And, it, and it's hard not to talk about and the and 80s and without talking about, yeah, and a tragic because he passed away. Yeah. Um, obviously, way too young. Um, mm. People always, when they're when when they're in a maligning mood about the 80s, they're they're one of the things they talk about is, you know, it became all about what you look like, you know, and stuff. Yeah, but well, that started be way before that. You know, the 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 uh, the idea that a band was m- more about how it presented mm. you know that was a that was really the new wave thing when you watch a movie like there's a great movie called one trick pony it's a paul simon film. right right uh and the basic idea is paul simon is an artist been around for a long time he's got this amazing band it's like steve gadd is the drummer yeah. and uh, eric gale he's got this amazing band they're traveling around in a mm-hmm. you know they're old school they're like a mm-hmm. 70s band songwriters you know playing uh acoustic instruments going from town to town in a van and uh, in one of the scenes there, they play their little set. It's fantastic, beautiful, emotive, Paul Simon songs. And But the headliner comes on right after. And who is it? It's the B-52s. And it's all this party energy. And it's like, everybody rocking. And it's like weird and, and uh, quirky. And here they are backstage, these sort of quote-unquote serious musicians. And here's this fun party band out there sort of jumping around. And the kids are really much, much more into this kind of energy than them. And mm-hmm. this was that had happened a couple of years before where the, the new wave was all about how a band presents. And, you know, mm-hmm. for people who like pop music, a lot of it was, just presentation you know rock and roll has always been about presentation you know mm. whether it's elvis's uh, hair or mm-hmm. the beatles suits or mm-hmm. you know rock and roll is showbiz too you know mm-hmm. it's not just what you do mm-hmm. it's how you come across mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um yeah sometimes this gets out of bounds it goes out of, <laughs> it goes out of balance right um but it's got to be both those things if you're a serious artist and you're thinking about your uh, how you come across, you know how you how you present. Yeah, you know it's yeah. part of it's part of that game. A, a, a lot of drummers seem to 
imagine and this i think is 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 age old um is an age old thing where, mm. where they imagine some world where they won't have to deal with that part yeah, it, you that's, know, like, yeah that's wishful thinking yeah, yeah. it's wishful well, thinking. maybe they don't if they don't if they don't ever work well yeah <laughs> right right and it was maybe a possibility in the 70s when you know when when people would see yeah. you know I, yeah i was gonna say ironically but probably not mm-hmm. people like steve gadd you know, yeah. th- no, hearing the stories that there were like three guys below Steve Gadd, you right. know, who there was a guy right. below Steve who would take the gigs he couldn't do. And there was a guy below that right. who would take the gigs that that guy couldn't do. It right. was just there's got to be a hierarchy. Right. Yeah, there was a hierarchy and 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 so much music being recorded. Right. So being a studio musician was, I guess, a valid right. goal to mm. be. But I think even back then it was probably overstated. And, and it's 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 kind of a convenient kind mm. of. Yeah. Uh, uh, thing to have in the back of your mind like mm. well I, I'm really just about the art you know yeah but you know you're on stage too you know uh, being a musician is not just about sitting and um, I don't know I get to tip into the kind of band I feel like you're a jazz guy and you're just getting into your thing on stage you know there's different types of bands who, who come mm. at it from different ways some bands really get into their little thing and they're, they're sort of heads down and the energy that they create is really all about what's happening between them on the stage mm. and the audience is kind of like not in their equation, mm-hmm. you know? Well, yeah, we know there's an audience there, but you know, if you watch a band like what, are, uh, to- uh, not tortoise, what's that band? Uh, one of the great like shoegazer guitar, uh, like, oh, uh, like built to spill. Oh, okay. Built to spill or a band. Like it's clearly a bunch of guys who just, they're in their thing. They don't really care how they come across. They're not putting on a show or mm. performance mm. that has to be in your personality. I'm one of those people. I come from a theater background. Mm. So for me, I'm always thinking about it as a show and a performance. That's a lot of people don't think of it that way. And, mm. uh, and I don't know if there's a, it's, it's one is more pure than the other. I, I can't mm. get into that, but, mm. um, yeah, it depends on the personalities and the individuals. Like some people are not, comfortable with the idea of it being like being on stage i love being on stage i think that's part of the what people i think that's part of what the audience wants the audience wants to be recognized too like we're all here together like Mm -hmm. i see you you see me here i am you know there's this uh chemistry that takes place Mm -hmm. between a band and audience. Mm -hmm. it can Mm -hmm. take place between a band and audience and the the audience wants to be recognized on some level they don't want to be right as much as they might love you they don't want to be left out i've seen bands i love uh, play entire shows and not really say anything of value to the audience. I, I remember seeing, I don't want to name the names, but mm. I went to see this band and I wanted them to say more. I wanted mm. to hear their personalities. Mm. And I, don't, I didn't even need to tell jokes, yeah. but I wanted something more from them. I wanted a little bit of their personality. Yeah. So it's not, not all bands are comfortable doing that. Yeah, 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 it's true. Um, did we have any other drummers that uh, we didn't talk about who you... Um, the drummers that I... I mean, Phil was a big one. 80s yeah. drumming, Phil was a big one. Um, and, uh, and Tony was another one. Um, I was, um, uh, let's see, oh, well, the two other guys, one was, um, the guy from Simple Minds, um, mm, I'm Mel Gaynor, Mel Gaynor, thank mm. you, I can never remember, I always have a block about Mel's name, mm. but things like, uh, Speed Your Love to Me, and, uh, uh, mm. Cal, these big, there was a beat that happened in the 80s that was this, boom, go 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 there was a thing, like, uh, uh, the drummer in, uh, uh, um, the other one was, uh, uh, the uh Tony, uh, uh, Mark Brzezinski, oh, right, 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 right. Big Country, Right, the big country, hey, you know, that that gallop was a classic 80s thing. There was a couple of drummers, uh, 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 Mel Gaynor was one, 
uh, uh, Mark was the other. Um, the, uh, the other guy I want to talk about was uh, was the other drummer, Peter Gabriel, not P- Phil Collins, but uh, oh, well, Jer- he had a bunch of drummers. I mean, yeah. there was Monocache, right. um, who was great. Uh, but I was really into the other guy that I'm just starting to discover is um, oh, what's his name? Uh, Jerry Murata. Murata. Yeah. Jerry yeah. Murata. Yeah. Uh, again, very me- sort of mechanical, but very musical. Had very uh, very aggressive. Mm. Uh, dark again, single-headed drum sound, fantastic. Very un- underrated, uh, mm. underrated drummer. Mm. Um, Crimson. We talked about Crimson. I was going to talk about Kraftwerk, which obviously there's no drummer in Kraftwerk, mm. but those beats and those sounds were very influential to me. Like these sort of and those sort of non-organic drum sounds became really interesting to me as a drummer. These clicks and bleeps and those classic Kraftwerk sounds of sort of non-drum drums. Yeah. I'm absolutely fascinated by that as a drummer. Um, uh, I wanted to talk about, just, I wanted to mention uh, uh, um, Sly and Robbie's uh, mm. uh, productions. Uh, Love is, like uh, Grace Jones put out a record, uh, Island Life, which is a great uh, dance record. Uh, and Sly and Robbie are the rhythm section there. They did, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I think when you do the research on, on what records Sly and Robbie played on through the 80s, you'll be rather uh, taken aback uh, at how much stuff they did and how, how widely influential they are. But another great rhythm section, great drum sounds. Mm. Um, uh, Devo's drummer. Uh, um, oh, uh, um, Alan Myers. Alan Myers, mm. also like a machine. Like drummers should not be afraid of the idea of literally being a machine. Yeah, you're not going to become, a, you're not going to literally become a robot. But the idea of playing robotically you know, that's sort of like a, uh, that very fast, uh, you know, whip it mm. kind of thing mm. or any of the diva stuff, you know, mm. uh, this, it, 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 uh, it, uh, was the, the very quintessential new wave, quirky, herky, jerky, hard eighth because rock and roll had always been a sort of a, a shuffle thing. When we started talking about, uh, rock pile was the shuffles, but that fell out of favor with the new wave. The new wave was dance music and it was all very, Hard eight, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the Devo singles are mm-hmm. all very, very tough and hard mm-hmm. and very, and that was the sound of the 80s. Mm-hmm. That sort of shuffle and this sort of that kind of humanness was out, it was not in favor. No one wanted to dance to a shuffle, everyone wanted this sort of big, like the new wave dances, wherever you're, you're going from side to side, kicking your legs out and putting your arms. I, you can, I'm doing it right now at the <laughs> microphone. <laughs> Um, but Alan Myers was a, was a machine. I was not afraid to play mm-hmm. like a machine. Listen to anything on uh, Freedom of Choice, mm-hmm. like, that big uh, gated drum sound again. With you know they put uh, like um, you know flanging mm-hmm. on it and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bill Berry, I think in a way, if you listen to some of that REM stuff, it, it's yeah. it's very it's it's tight and it's hard and it's, yeah. and it's but it's, it was about being a machine. That's to. the thing. What happened was that the, there was the rise in the late seventies of disco. And then of things like Kraftwerk became popular, mm. and uh, so uh, and I and 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 songwriters were since drum machines became widely available, people were writing their demos on drum machines, and they wanted it to sound like that. So drummers were it behooved to sort of sound and play like drum machines played, which was very. Uh, on the beat, not behind it, not in front of it. You know, there wasn't any laying back like Charlie Watts or like a Zeppelin thing where you, you know, the, the snare drums 
the bass drum falls right on and the snare drum falls behind. It was all like hard on point. And drummers had to learn to play hard on point, which is a, you know, it's a, it's a skill set that you have to learn. Hmm. Uh, you know, you have to change the way you're tuning. You have to change the way you organize fills. So, uh, so this started, you know, with, like I said, with things like craft work, it seemed to me, and drummers were, had to play more robotically because that was the flavor of the, of the decade, it turned out. But, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, so, and, and uh, yeah, and so guys like Alan Myers, who started in the 70s, is this sort of, you know, this, this, this was the sound of New Wave. It was this kind of quirky, you know, very, very high. It was nothing uh, 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 shuffly or about a triplety about it. The triplet went out the window. Mm-hmm. Until, until hip hop came back in, the triplet came back into favor. Mm-hmm. This sort of underlying triplet that exists in, that sort of underlying triplet that exists in, in hip hop, mm. um, that didn't come back into favor for another you know fifteen years mm. till the nineties. Mm. Mm. Um, through the eighties, it was really this sort of hard, for the most part. Of course, I'm over. I'm yeah. over. Uh, thing. Until thing like and there was Gogo. Was Gogo? Was that an eighties thing? That sort of. I think so. Yeah. Uh, that was a, sure. an interesting short-lived uh, yeah, phenomenon. Yeah. Very funky. Yeah. Very. Uh, well, I you know, that. it's interesting. Very when shuffly. You d- as you were suggesting a minute ago, where you know the, you you can sort of come up with sort of generalities about these yeah. things, but and always find exceptions oh, to the rule. Obviously, obviously. But yeah, I, 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 I like you. I'm fascinated with that period because largely because it's it's a re, it's reactionary, mm-hmm. but it can't ignore the past, and right. it's something that you know I think in the last ten years or so you, you felt and seen a lot of bands try to take elements of that and incorporate oh, sure. it, yeah. you know, in some sort of modern way, and, and mm. it's. Yeah. Frankly, it's it's really sort of informed a lot of the more interesting music that I've heard in the last ten years or so. And yeah, so absolutely, nice a lot of those English those bands, those big uh, English bands, were like I said, you know, sort of that upbeat thing. If you listen to a band like Franz Ferdinand, mm-hmm. you know, they're definitely drawing a lot of bands. Uh, was, um, there's tons of them that are drawing directly from bands like New Order, and mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. we saw, you know, we saw the other day we were playing at a festival, and uh, Peter Hook was uh, had his own band. They'll be here in New York actually in a couple of. Uh, yeah weeks months where i think i'm going to be away at the time um but there he's he's taking a, a really great band on tour and they're playing all that stuff oh wow they're playing all the joy division stuff they're playing all the new order stuff that's interesting it sounds so good if really? you if you if he comes yeah. through town go see him and man so so great wow. and he's he's great he's a great performer he's got a great voice he's a great huh. personality really wow yeah i i i, I uh, matthew was telling me some story uh, that he was at some point they i guess when ian died uh martin uh, auditioned all the remaining members to be the lead singer yeah. of the band, yeah. and uh, and uh, the guitarist won out. Uh, yeah, oh. <laughs> but but uh, but Peter could have easily been. He's got a wonderful singing voice, wow. and he sort of got. Uh, he didn't make. He didn't pass the audition, but he. He could well have been the lead yeah. singer of, of of New Order, just as easily as the guitarist. Yeah, 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 and those bass lines. Maybe oh, that was his way of getting uh, getting vocal melodies in there. Yeah. Cause his bass, bass oh, a super are, melodic guy, unbelievable. Are, are hooks in, unbelievable. in themselves, yeah. Yeah. Well, th- this has been uh, lots and lots of fun. Oh man, we, uh, is it over? <laughs> I yes. thought we were just. Uh, we haven't even gotten to. You got to go now. Yeah. All right. That go. was fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Adam. Thank I, you I for it. joining us. Thanks for listening to the Modern Drummer Podcast. 
Be sure to check out other special episodes at moderndrummer.com, as well as our weekly series with Mike Johnson of mikeslessons.com and MD Managing Editor Mike Dawson.